Well, that was a great song um, that Peter and David sang, and it reminds us of the odd life that we live with regard to the kingdom. The kingdom of God is already here, and yet it is, but it is not yet all the way here. There's a lot of that already, not yet. We are saved from sin, but sin still is a part of our lives. One day it will not be have anything to do with us, and oh, how I long for that day. I cannot wait until the day when I am done with me. And, um, and you probably can't wait for that day either till you're done with me, and we're done with each other and all of our sins. You know, that's the way it is. We just, this life is, we've got a taste of, of, of heaven, and yet it's just a taste. And so, the kingdom that Peter was singing about, which doesn't mean that we settle it, exactly as Peter said, we, we go for it. You know, if we belong to Jesus Christ, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, then we have somewhat of a sense of biblical morality. In other words, we, we understand what Scripture says is right and what is wrong. And so consequently, we have a pretty well-developed sense of morality. If we're followers of Jesus, we also understand that morality is absolutely not the way that we're made acceptable to God just by living good lives. It's by repentance of our sin and trust that Jesus Christ died for us because of our sin. We're, look, all it takes to be a moral person is to find somebody worse than you. And so, you know, that's what our morality comes down to a whole lot. But nonetheless, when we belong to Jesus, what's important to Him is important to us. So we recognize certain things are wrong, certain things are right. Now, I think when we think about different countries and we think about even cities within countries, we recognize that some cities and some places are more open than others. And when we say that, we just simply mean they're more open to sin. So if we were thinking about the most open cities in America, or in other words, the most wicked city in America... If we're trying to narrow it down to one, what, what would you vote? Would you say, A, it is New York, B, Los Angeles, Los Angeles, Rhett, three, or C, um, San Francisco, or D, Las Vegas? Or perhaps you would say, yes, all of the above, E. Uh, we look at those and we recognize that there's a lot of wickedness that goes on in a lot of these places. Then let's see, Peter, you're heading to New York, right? All right, so Rhett's going to L.A., Peter's going to New York. Uh, honey, let's go to Las Vegas. <laughs> no, just kidding. Well, if you voted all of the above, then you have a little sense of what Antioch of Syria, the city that we're going to read about this morning, was like in the first century in our text this morning. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, just behind Rome and Alexandria, Egypt. There were half a million inhabitants, not counting slaves. It was, as you might imagine, it was a melting pot of sorts. Uh, there were at least five cultures that were rep well represented there. Actually, we're going to talk about another one right after this. But Roman, Greek, Semitic, Arab, Persian cultures all in full bloom in Antioch. Jews made up one-seventh of the city's inhabitants. And the Jews, and why not? Because in their neighborhoods, the Jews were allowed to, to impose their laws on all people. 
If you were in a Jewish neighborhood in Antioch, you had to abide by Jewish law. Not Antioch, Antiochian law, but Jewish law. Jews were also allowed to be citizens of the city, which was remarkable in that day. In other words, it was a very progressive, very open city in the kingdom. Antioch was famous for its chariot races and for pursuit of pleasure. A lot of that pleasure was religiously justified, as it was so often in the, in the ancient world, in pagan cultures. They did so by reenacting Apollos' pursuit of Daphne. They worshipped the goddess Daphne there. And day and night, men would chase women who were ritual prostitutes around reenacting this Greek mythology. It was in this city... In this Antioch, that believers were first called Christians, providing a name for the followers of of Jesus, the Christ. Previously, they had, had identified themselves and were known as disciples, believers, saints, and the brethren. Now, Christians. It was in this wicked and depraved city that some of the early church's finest preachers shared Jesus in public forums. In the first century, Peter, Paul, Barnabas all preached in Antioch. In the second century, Ignatius and Theophilus, very important names in the early church. In the fourth century, John Chrysostom. If you know anything about church history, you know this name. Chrysostom was known as the golden mouth preacher, had very eloquent in the ways that he shared the gospel. These were bright lights in a very dark place. Today's text is Acts 11, 19 to 12, 24. We're taking these large chunks of scripture because we're following along the the, the guide that our home groups are going through. And And this particular text tells the recurring story of the early church. Growth and opposition. Growth and persecution. That's pretty much the same story in our day of the church. Growth and opposition, growth and persecution, although I do hope that none of us are ever sentenced like Ignatius was in the second century to die by being eaten by lions in the Colosseum. We do face opposition to the gospel, though. Absolutely, it is is going to come with... if, If there's no opposition in your life and... In your church, then nothing's going on. If something's going on, Satan is going to rear his head. Now we're going to read and think about the growth of the church in Acts 11, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. That's when we're going to stand and read in just a moment. The rest of the text as we read, we, we won't be standing. But we're going to think a little bit about this section, and then the next read with a little bit of comment, which of course ends up turning into more comment than I anticipate almost always in in chapter 12. So right now, though, if you would, if that didn't make any sense, just hang with it, it will. Uh, In in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. If you would, please stand. We're going to read this section. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, 
men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Just, just a word of explanation. Hellenists there, not almost certainly talking about Gentiles, not Hellenistic Jews that we have spoken of in the last few weeks. So most certainly he's talking about Gentiles. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. This theme is over and over. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, Agabus stood and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands or by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts wide to receive your word. This narrative that we are considering today, for the most part, speaks for itself. But help us not to miss the tremendous work that you did and the tremendous truth that should impact us at a high level in this day just because it's a story, just because we've read it before. Open our hearts and fill them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When the believers were first persecuted in Jerusalem, they spread out, taking the gospel with them. They went all over the Roman Empire. Now, these people were divided up into two groups, pretty much. Those who, who shared the gospel only with Jews, thinking that this is a Jewish thing. It's a new way of looking at the Jewish people's covenant with God. And others who had no better sense or didn't know any better than just to go ahead and share it with Gentiles. Now the timeline here is a little tricky. This is some 10, 12 years after the persecution of Stephen. We've moved on quite a bit from this point. We know that by, because of the timeline in Galatians where Paul was talking about he spent this amount of time here, three years out in the desert in Arabia and then back in, in Damascus. Then he went... For some 11 years later, 8 to 10, 11 years, somewhere along in there, to Tarsus. Then Barnabas went over there and got him, which we read about just now. And they stayed a year in Antioch. And then Paul really got serious about these mission trips. And the, and the scripture begins to, to focus on him. But the point is, people went out sharing either to just Jews or to Jews and Gentiles. Now, we don't know exactly when it was. Maybe they had heard about the... The conversion of Cornelius, which had only happened a year or so earlier. And they said, well, hey, God's preaching to all Gentiles. This we know for sure. This is the first time that it's recorded that there is any kind of group effort 
to share the gospel with Gentiles. As Kent Hughes said about these people, he said, they were the first believers to bring the explosive light of Christianity into the midnight of paganism. That's a great, that's a great word about that, isn't it? They brought the explosive light of the gospel, of Christianity, of the gospel, into the midnight of paganism. You know what? I, I, I doubt there's anybody in here today that is languishing in the midnight of paganism. I doubt it. But I would guess that it's midnight. It feels like midnight in some of your lives. There is so much going on. I, I, I cannot begin to tell you how many struggles I know about in the church, out of the church. Everybody has problems these days. It just seems harsh. And you know what? The gospel brings light into our darkest, darkest places. You know, when we talk about the gospel advancing, that's what's going to be happening in a couple of weeks. As a number of people from Grace, this is not an official Grace community mission trip. That's why you haven't heard so much about it. But there's a pretty good-sized group of people that have a heart to go to Haiti and share the gospel of Jesus Christ down there. An opportunity has arisen, and a number of people are going. And we, they certainly go with our blessing, our prayers, and all the support that we can give them. That's what was happening in Antioch. This was a dark place. Now, it didn't feel like a dark place to the people who were participating in it. But if you have any connection with God at all, you look at this and you say, this is a dark, dark place. And it was not the apostles who first attacked this stronghold of Satan. It wasn't one of one or two of those preachers that we talked about over the centuries that, that first went in there and jumped on a street corner and started preaching, or even in the synagogue. It was these anonymous, everyday heroes of the kingdom. Just ordinary people who went in there and made such an impact on the city. The Holy Spirit using them made such an impact on the city that the people took notice and gave them a name. What happened? Verse 21. The, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of them believed and turned to the Lord. That, by the way, is the way of salvation of all of us. We turn from our sins to the Lord and believe that Jesus died for our sins. Well, the church at Jerusalem heard what was happening in Antioch, and they thought, we better check this out. It's, remember a few weeks ago we talked about how important it was, what a strategic decision it was, that while the rest of the church scattered, the, the believers scattered, these thousands of people who had been saved and were on fire for Jesus in Jerusalem, went all over the Roman Empire, except for the apostles, they went underground. And it was very important to everybody, for the apostles, those who had been with Jesus, who had been appointed by Jesus to lead the church, it was important that they put their stamp of approval on anything that was happening. It happened when Philip went to Samaria, and he preached there and people got saved. These were cousins of Jews, though. I mean, they were like 
cousins of the Jews. So even though they didn't like the Samaritans at all, they said, okay, I can understand it. There's some Jewish blood in there, and we go with that. Then the story of Cornelius. They, but they had to go and check it out, <clears throat> put their approval on it before everybody said, it's good. Then Cornelius that you heard about last week with Sean preaching got saved up in Caesarea and they told Peter, get down here and explain yourself. You know, like Ricky Ricardo used to say, you got some explaining to do. You know, come down here and tell us what happened. And he did. And they were silent. That was, <laughs> that's a section of scripture we're just skipping. It missed between last week and this week. It says when, when the council at Jerusalem heard what Peter had said, it says they were just, they were silent. And then they began to praise the Lord. Can you, can't you just see that scene? They're just soaking it all in. And then they say, Unbelievable! Thank you, Lord! You've brought salvation to the Gentiles. Well, now, people are out there preaching, witnessing to the Gentiles. And they say, we got to check this out. And so, they send Barnabas. Now, that's interesting, too. That's a shift. It's not one of the apostles. It's Barnabas. Barnabas, get up there. Find out what's going on. Barnabas was the perfect person to go. I mean, he didn't go up there saying, I want to know what's going on around here. Somebody explain this to me. He went with an open heart, quickly saw that the Lord was doing it, and he rejoiced in what God was doing in that city. And he encouraged them to stand strong in the Lord. And God added some more to their numbers. God was doing a lot in the early church, wasn't he? Two things were quite apparent then. First, it was the Lord who added to the church. We, we read that over and over and over. We read about all of these, these men and women who are doing these amazing things. But we keep seeing this phrase, the Lord added to their numbers. Second, we read that the believers and a large number of believers were very, very committed to sharing Christ with all who would listen. And that ought to challenge us in two ways. First, if it's God who brings salvation, if He's the one who brings salvation, then we need to pray diligently for opportunities to witness, and then to pray for those people to whom we are witnessing. My goodness, it's not up to us. It is amazing to me how many times I get the sense that, that believers who share the gospel feel like, I failed. I failed. They didn't, they didn't accept Jesus. I failed in my mission. No, your mission is to share the gospel. It's God's business to bring whom he wants into the kingdom. One sows, one waters, God gives the increase. The fruit is not going to come to fruit. It's not going to come to fruition. We're not going to pluck any fruit apart from God doing it. He's the one that brings it at that level. And so therefore we ought to pray, Lord, please do your work in this person's life. That's the way he's designed it. And prayer is enormously meaningful. Because of that. But then second, if God has chosen to reveal himself to, through us, it is time for us to be much, much more intentional about sharing Christ than we presently are, both individually 
and corporately. I know that there are some of you. I could name a few of you that are in this room today who witness every chance you get the opportunity. I feel like I'm close to that. Not that I feel like I'm an evangelist at heart, but I, whenever I get the opportunity, the, the conversation, I try to move the conversation in that direction. It's just that I don't get that much opportunity because I'm around you all the time, Christians. And how many times can Diane McLaughlin be saved? I don't know. We're going for a record, but, but you have to be out there. And, and that's, the, that's the challenge to me, to be much more intentional about intersecting with lost people so that I can interact with them. So, the title of this whole series, Acts, the advance of the, advancing the gospel then and now. And how God uses us to be a part of that. Well, verses 25 and 26 constitute a turning point of sorts in the book of Acts. Barnabas went to Tarsus to seek out Saul, whom he had last seen as far as we know eight to ten years ago. Who knows? Maybe there was travel back and forth and these, these guys knew each other very well. That, that's a distinct possibility, but it's not recorded that that's the case. I doubt seriously Saul was sitting around just studying Scripture all those years in Tarsus. He most likely was preaching, and in fact, a lot of people think that that's where he received those 39 stripes that he speaks of in uh, 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 11, where the Romans just administered the punishment of, of a public whipping and flogging, which was just an awful thing in every way imaginable. But probably Paul had already been persecuted. We see him as Saul here, but from henceforth, it's going to be Paul. And Saul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch for a year. And they made such an impact, along with these anonymous Christians, made such an impact on the city that the inhabitants, who were known for giving nicknames, called them Christians. That, that's an interesting piece of history about Antioch. They, they gave nicknames to everybody. They were kind of a, a, a loosey-goosey kind of people, you know. They just played around a lot. Regardless of what you thought about the last president, George W. Bush, Bush if you spent any time around him at all, you got a nickname. He gave you a nickname. That's just the way he was. That's the way he remembered people. Probably gave that guy that threw the shoe at him in the... Um, Probably called him Nolan Ryan or something, I don't know, in the, in the press conference. Boy, he, he was good. I saw the video of that recently, ducking those shoes. But, <clears throat> but that, that's the way they did. They gave people nicknames, and they said, you are, we're going to call you Christians, followers of Christ, the fo followers of the Messiah. Now, you've probably heard that this was a term used to mock those followers of Christ, and I've said it in the past myself. But in studying, John Stott, and it seems to make sense, seems to think that this was a, a term of familiarity and jocularity, you know, more than it was a, a derisive term. In other words, it was just kind of playful. Uh, you know, Pat Garner came in the first service this morning. And uh, as he was walking in, he had this golden green jacket on Green Bay, obviously, for the night. I said, hey, what you got that jacket? What are you wearing that jacket for? He said, just a golden green jacket has no meaning at all. 
but the deacons had to remove him. He was eating nachos in the service. So, I mean, I think it's more to it than that. I think he's a Packers fan. He's just getting ready for the Super Bowl. But it's just, that was just, we were just joking. And that's kind of the way it was. They were making really a positive, a very positive impact on this wicked city. And they called them, the inhabitants said, we're going to call you Christians. I don't know, I think that name caught on. Uh, Don't you? Christians. Isn't it a privilege? Just think of what a privilege it is to be called Christian. Don't be embarrassed. Look, because of what other Christians have done, don't ever say, oh, I'm almost embarrassed to be called a Christian. Cut cut that out. You can't do anything with anybody else. Be Be glad to be called a follower of Jesus, no matter what people think about him. Well, the Lord impacted the Christians at Antioch to such a level that they decided to send aid to the poor saints in Jerusalem, which was a very generous and sacrificial act. And and, and that act of them doing it set the stage for Luke, who was the author of Acts, to, to, to turn our focus back to the church in Jerusalem. Here, from henceforth, we we see them again in Acts 15. Paul ends back up in Jerusalem later. But for the most part, the church is moving out. It's branching out, and we don't hear too much more. But God has not forgotten about His followers, Jesus' followers, in Jerusalem. And we're going to read about opposition and, and persecution. Opposition always follows growth. Always follows growth. In our day, there's not a whole lot of opposition from without. So thank God we don't have any worries about opposition. No, Satan raises it up from within. It happens everywhere. That's Look, it happened in the first century. There was a great deal of op- opposition from within the church. And who did it come from? It came from you and from me. It comes from all of us. I said it recently, I'll say it again. If, if Jesus can look at Peter, who had the best of intentions as far as we can tell, and said, get behind me, Satan, any of us are capable of being used to, to mess up the advance of the gospel. Spiritual warfare comes at us from all directions. You know what? You know that shield of faith? You know that shield of faith in Ephesians 6? You know what that was? It was a tortoise shell. It was a shield, a tortoise shell or a tortoise shield, I mean, that you, you see if you, if you saw the movie Gladiator, when they got in the arena, he says, come over here quickly for him. And you saw the very first, first scene where they're out in Germany and, uh, or they're fighting the barbarians over in Europe somewhere. And, 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 and this just this heavy, this huge number of arrows comes at them. The ones in the front get down like this. They put this... Um, Shield in front of them, and the ones right behind put the shields up over top, and arrows cannot penetrate. Maybe one slips through somewhere. But it is a collective, and look, if you just stand there like this, you're in big trouble. It takes the whole group working as a church to fight off the arrows of Satan, which is why it's so devastating when they come from within. It's why we must be unified 
as a body, if the advance of the gospel is going to be a reality out of grace or out of any church. And I have heard of church after church after church going down, going down. So often it comes from within, not from without. Well, we're going to read about persecution that came from without, and believe you me, there's plenty of that in the world. We just happen to live in the Bible Belt. So we don't see a great deal of opposition, but boy, it is there all over the world. And while there is little need for comment, I'm sure I will not be able to help myself and make a comment or two. But I want us to just just begin reading in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king... Okay, I'm going to stop right here and make a comment. Let me tell you about this Herod, just real quickly. This was the grandson of the Herod who uh, had ordered all of the babies, all the baby boys, two years and, and younger, to be killed when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, over in Bethlehem. The reason it was the grandson instead of the son is because the grandfather, Herod, first Herod, Antipas, I'm, I, I, I don't have him clear in my mind right now, so I better not say, but the grandfather, the Herod at the time Jesus was born, had his own son killed. He was suspicious of him and had him killed. I mean, th- th- this was a dysfunctional family. Boy, you, you better believe this was one messed up bunch of people. And so the grandson... Um, was just the same way. And it says here that he, the king laid violent hands on some who belong to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Now, the, Herod was a political animal. He was Jewish, but really only by birth. His mind was in Rome, but he played it to his advantage, he, he, he pretended to be a great friend of the Jews. I'm Jewish and I'm the king of the Jews. And the people, the, the Jews knew his mess, but they were just as politically minded as he was, and so everybody played the game. And he went and he, and he had James, the brother of John, killed. And he saw that it pleased the people, and he said, this is really good for business. And so then in his mind, he went straight to the top, got Peter, put him in jail during the Feast of Unleavened Bread when, when they couldn't carry out executions. But he had a plan in mind. Um, and by the way, this James, just to keep it straight, we'll talk more about him in a few weeks, but this James was not uh, the James that we read about who was one of the, the leaders of the early church. He was the half-brother of Jesus um, who didn't believe in Jesus during his time, didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, he's his half-brother. As far as he knew, he's his brother. You know, hey, you're my brother. You're the Messiah, right. Uh, You're a goody-goody, but you're no Messiah. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus appeared to him, and I'm certain to his brother Jude as well, who was also a a brother of Jesus. And uh, from this point on, he passionately believed. He's also the James... That James is the James who wrote the, the, the epistle, James, that comes right after Hebrews. This James was the brother of John. And how, we don't even stop to think about how difficult this must have been for John, the apostle. I mean, every time you read about 
James and John, you read about them together just about in the Gospels. They're always together. They were very tight. And now he's been killed. And now he's thrown Peter in. Verse 4. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Not all at one time, three-hour shifts, four squads of four each. Intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people for a mock trial and execution. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. First of all, I, I don't know that I would have been sleeping the night before my execution. Peter was. That much peace in the Lord. But this was overkill. Usually, one guard was chained to a prisoner. Three-hour shifts. This uh, particular situation here, it said, you know, I'd heard about Peter escaping, Peter and John escaping from prison before, and that's not going to happen on my watch. And so, got a prisoner, I mean, a guard on both hands, and he's got two right outside the, the gates. And... Says, not going to happen. Well, too bad. It did. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Do you believe in angels? There are these kinds of stories that happen in persecuted lands. I've heard about them. I don't never talk with anybody specifically about a particular instance where this happened, but I've read about them where this kind of thing continues to go on in our day in lands where people are persecuted and unfairly uh, put in prison. Well, verse 9, He went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. We we can get that. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. I've told this story probably more recently than I think. Maybe I tell it every week, and I just don't know it, but... We have so many new people. It's worth telling, especially right here. This, it just sort of paints this picture. When I went to school back in, in the 70s, a place called Tennessee Temple, and there was a guy who was there from Nigeria named Solomon Owalabi. What an awesome guy he was. Well, he, when he first came, the Lord made it possible for him to come to, to America to go to college. And he was a Christian. He was going to get training for the ministry, and he came. And he got to the New York airport and he had a suitcase in both hands and one on his head. And he was walking along and he came to a door and he's thinking, oh, what am I going to do? And all of a sudden the door opened and he said, praise the Lord! You know, the Lord has opened this door for him. Which he did, you know, I mean. But that's exactly what you see. You sort of get this sense of that's what's happening in, in Acts where, can you imagine these gates? He's just like, and he says, okay, this is real. All right, I get it now. This is not a vision. Felt like a vision. So, verse 11. 
When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. They were going to see an execution by sword, by the way. That's, that's significant. It's beheading is what he's talking about. And that was reserved for um, murderers and heretics. And so James was really playing to the crowd. These are heretics and I'm going to kill them by beheading them. That's what they were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. It's our, our Mark. Where many were gathered together and were praying. This very likely is the same home where the, the Lord's Supper had taken place, the Last Supper had taken place. <clears throat> and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept insisting what they said was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. Really? I mean, this is the way we are, isn't it? You ever prayed for somebody for something that's really way out there? And they come and they tell you, hey, the Lord answered that prayer, and you say, Really? No kidding! Get out of here! Wow! That's, I mean, they're just like, wonder why they were praying. By the way, what does that say about people who were told God didn't answer this prayer for healing because your faith wasn't strong enough? Sort of the opposite, isn't it? God answered their prayer. No, he didn't. I'm sure some of them were praying that, you know, he would die a, a noble death or that the Lord would just be with his family, be, give him pain. But they were praying earnestly, God, deliver him. And God did, and they said, I doubt it. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. No joke. Uh, <laughs> Herod had planned this grand persecution and he said it's not happening on my watch that this guy gets out of jail and it turns out that this little ragtag group of believers who were praying ended up with more power the power of God than Herod and the finest four of the finest squads of Rome's soldiers and after Herod searched for him and did not find him he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death then he went down from Judea to Caesarea, to Caesarea, I'm sorry, and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. <coughs> politics, politics. That's all it was. And yet, Herod received that praise. Well, I am pretty special. 
immediately. An angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, if you need it, 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 it may be helpful to you. We shouldn't need it. But Josephus, a secular historian, recorded this exact same event. Herod came out. They proclaimed him to be a god. He was stricken with this horrible stomach pain. And he died a few days later. What was very common, well, not common, but it did happen in that day, was people had worms. Um, and some of these worms would fall, form in a tight ball, and they would block the intestines. And, and it was an excruciatingly painful death. And God connected these incidences. There's a connection. Herod's persecuting the church. He receives glory that belongs to God, and God struck him dead. You may feel like you are absolutely alone in this world, but I want you to know something. If you were a follower of Jesus, you are in incredibly strong and caring hands. The challenge for us is to let God be the one who brings justice. It's a day where people talk about justice so much, and, 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 and God talks about justice. But you know how he, he directs us to do justice. But when we hear the call for justice today, so often the call is, I want justice done in my life. God says, don't worry about that justice. You just make sure you're being just to other people. But as far as your life is concerned, you trust me. I'll take care of you. And he does, doesn't he? And then look at this theme that's repeated over and over and over again. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. What a fitting conclusion to this text. And, and, and a truth that we see over and over. And it's because of that truth that we are here today and that we come to this table to remember why it is that we gather as a body and why that we have hope of eternal life because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Like for us to bow our heads, and if you would, as Scripture commands, and it does so for our good, prepare your heart for this time where we will partake of the elements that cause us to remember and to interact with Jesus in a very special way. This bread that represents His body and this fruit of the vine that represents His blood.